Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to see you and to be back with you. Sorry, last week didn't work out so well. Thanks to those of you who joined us online, though. Things got a little dicey, and I was honestly a little bit worried that some ice might show up this morning and we'd be in the same position. But I'm glad to be able to be here with you guys and to uh, be able to say hey to you guys who are joining us online. Like Pastor Andrew said, we, you might be joining us a little bit later. And so uh, happy Valentine's Day. Hopefully you get to celebrate that a little bit as well. My name is Corey, and I have the honor and privilege of being one of the pastors here at Grace Family. And this week is a great week because we're starting a brand new series. So we spent the first six weeks of the year talking about being made in the image of God and what that meant for us as people and what that meant as we see other people as made in the image of God and how we fulfilled the roles that God has given us as image bearers. And now we're kind of turning the page and starting a brand new conversation. And one of the things that we're going to do this year is we're going to focus our time on the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapters 5 through 7, but we're not going to do it all in one shot. So that could take us a good like 18 weeks or so to be able to do that really well. So instead, what we've done is we're going to break it up into a few different sections and kind of come back. But this will be a passage that we come back to over and over again this year. So if you want to, you can have that as part of your reading time. And just kind of lean into that weekly and see what that looks like and read through the verses again. And so we'll come back to this topic. And the way that we phrase this first section of the Sermon on the Mount is we've asked the question, what if we took Jesus' words seriously? I think many of us at different times, if you've read Scripture, you've read something in Scripture and thought, seriously? Like that's what Jesus really means. That's what he's actually saying. That's what I'm supposed to do. And Honestly, as someone who has spent some time in biblical circles, I've been in, I went to a Christian middle school, I went to a Christian high school, I went to Christian college, I did seminary. In all of these circles at times, what you see is we get to a point where we ask the question, really, is that truly what it means? And the unfortunate thing is sometimes we find ways around it. And so even really famous teachers or people that we know well who have taught the Bible for a long time, we get to a difficult passage and we kind of just find a little way around it and, and kind of finesse it a little bit better into what we would rather it say rather than taking it at face value. And what we want to do with this series, what we always want to do with scripture is to really look at what the Bible is teaching us and say, how do we apply it? How does it work for us? And we never want to take it out of context. We never want to move it in a direction where it shouldn't go, but we want to really take it for what it means and apply it to our lives in the way that we are called to do so. And I think one of the issues when you decide to do this is you have to ask yourself the question, what if Jesus knows me better than I do? And too many times when we look at Scripture, we might be tempted to say, well, that doesn't apply to me. And there are some very real times where that happens, where you might read a passage of Scripture and it's talking about a very tangible thing like crossing the Jordan River. That doesn't mean that we need to now go and cross the Jordan River, right? But there's a more deep understanding of what we're trying to learn from that passage. And what we need to ask is, what if, what if Jesus does know me better than I do? What if, when I ask seriously, is that really for me, or is he really trying to teach me that, or is that really something I have to do? We have to give Jesus the credit in understanding us better than we do. Why? Because we just talked about how he is our creator. He's made us. He has made us on purpose and for a purpose. So we have to trust that he would know that. And then there's a second question. It's kind of the same thing, but what if Jesus simply knows better than I do? What if his knowledge is greater than my own? And this is the tension we live in. And, and by the way, this is the tension that some of our culture wouldn't like. 
is that we would actually give kind of the keys of our life over to somebody who we've never physically met before. We would hand the keys of our life over to a book that's 2,000 years old and say, this gets to rule how I live. What God says is going to be what I do. And so this is the tension. This is the tension for us as followers of Christ. It's the tension for those of us who might not be followers of Christ yet to say, is it really worth it to allow Jesus' words to sink into our lives and say, even the times when we kind of go, really, that's what he's saying? We would then be willing to say, how do I apply this? How do I allow this to sink into my life and come true in the way that I'm living? So we're going to start our conversation today in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start just briefly. We're only going to do verses 1 through 5 today. So Matthew 5, verses 1 through 5. We have the words up, or the verses up here on the screen for you. You can follow along on your phone or you can open your physical Bible if you'd like. I'm going to start just with the first two verses. So Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2 says this. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. So very basic couple of verses here, but let me explain what had happened just previously. This is fairly early on in Jesus' ministry. We're only a few chapters into the book of Matthew. Jesus had just called his 12 disciples, and so they were following him very closely. And Jesus was kind of beginning to get famous, or today we would say he was going viral. People were starting to realize what was going on in his life. They were they were just coming to him, and he was healing people, and he was feeding people, and, and more and more people are starting to get the word out. And so this crowd starts to flock to you if you're able to just heal people of these diseases that they've had for a very long time. And so he has this crowd around him, and it says it's his disciples. It does include his 12 disciples, but it also includes people that didn't believe Jesus yet. And they were asking the question, does Jesus know better than I do? Is he worth following? There were also people who had decided to follow Jesus, but they just weren't one of the 12. And so you've got this big crowd of people. And so Jesus kind of gets him to, gets to a place where more people can see him. And he starts to have this conversation. And I think what he begins to do, what he begins to say, let's lay the ground rules. Let's figure out what this looks like. And so if you've been to a baseball game or you've played baseball or anything like that, you might realize that before the game, Everybody or two, either the managers and the umpire or somebody, a representative from each team will come and they'll gather at home plate because baseball is different than any other game, right? You, if you go play basketball, the court is always the same. The rim is always the same height. If you play football, the field is always the same. Baseball is different. You could have one field that you play at and there's a wall that's way higher than another. You could have one field that you play at and the, the rules are just different. Playing church league softball, this was very true. And you kind of never knew what the rules were going to be if you hit it in a certain area. And so there's this conversation that's had about what does this look like? And really what Jesus is setting us up to understand is what does the kingdom of heaven look like? He says, you are going to know the rules of your culture. You're going to know the things that your culture is going to teach. You're going to know what your leaders are going to teach. But he says, let me have a conversation with you about what it means to be my followers and what it means to build my kingdom. And we had a conversation about this just a few weeks ago where we said that because Jesus came and died and rose again, everyone is now welcome into the kingdom. And so this is one of the first conversations where he says, if you're going to be part of the kingdom, this is what your life is to look like. And he lays the ground rules out for us to understand. In verse 3, this is what he says, God blesses those 
who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Let me read that just one more time so we catch every piece of it. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. These are some pretty big words. And when you see the word poor, maybe you feel like you are included in that. I feel like as a college student, I felt very much in that category. But maybe we don't identify in that space. But here's what that means. It's not just saying poor as in your bank account is low. The idea that's there is actually poor in spirit. Well, then we have to ask the question, okay, what does poor in spirit mean? And it really means the recognition of our own unrighteousness. See, if we're poor in spirit, we recognize that we are not able to fulfill things on our own. We're not able to get to the place we need to go. We're not able to do things by ourselves all the time. And some of that, I think for us in America or in Western culture, that can mean recognizing that our resources, our bank account is not the thing that defines whether we're able to take care of something or not. So when we're talking about this idea of poor in spirit, I think sometimes there is that recognition of the idea of poor in resources as well. And one of the questions we can ask ourselves as we process this is, when I'm in need, where do I turn? I think it's easy, I'll say it's easy for me, to say, okay, if I'm in need, do I have the monetary resources to fix the problem? Or do I have the time to fix the problem? Or do I know a guy or know a gal who can fix the problem for me? Are my time, energy, and resources able to fix my, my problem? I think what Jesus is actually helping us understand is that we have to recognize that our time and energy and resources aren't able to fix the problem that we have. And we have to turn to him and understand that he's the one who's going to be able to fulfill those things for us. It says, what, right, the verse said, and realize their need for him. That's what the poor in spirit means. And then he says, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Why? Because we can't obtain the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's difficult, I think, I'll say again, it's difficult for me, I think it's difficult for many people, to say that we are not good enough. To say that I can't do it on my own. To say I need help. But this idea of being poor in spirit is the willingness to see that we need the help that Jesus offers. And so the first ground rule that he helps us understand is you can't do this on your own. And remember the context of who he's talking to, some of which were... Jewish people who had been taught, you need to follow all these rules. We talked about that a little bit ago, right? All the rules you need to follow, and if you follow all the rules, you will then be righteous. So you, you can't, that's not the way this works. You can't find this in your own self. And so the first thing I think we need to realize is that we cannot allow our earthly resources to replace our Heavenly Father. We can't allow our earthly resources or our earthly abilities or our earthly bank account to replace what we need God to be and do in our lives. And we kind of begin to decentralize ourselves from how we understand the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4 goes on to say this, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You know, as, as Pastor Andrew mentioned, we spent time yesterday mourning the loss of Trish. By the way, we have some beautiful flowers over here on the piano in her memory, and then there's one out in the lobby as well. And so when we see this word mourn, that's what we think of. We think of losing someone. We think of the sadness that comes along with that. And there's definitely a piece of this idea that goes with that and being understanding of the fact that Jesus offers us hope 
in that situation, but it goes a little bit deeper than that. In fact, it goes to mourning with those who mourn and being willing to walk alongside people that need to be walked alongside with, to come alongside them and lift them up and help them in areas that they need help with. Again, to decentralize ourselves from that conversation. But there's also an idea that goes along with sin. And mourning the separation that sin brings into our lives. You know, I'm not a big, I, I don't like boats very much. Do people like boats a lot? Like if you're into, okay, I if you have a boat and you are really hoping to take me out on it, I am thankful, but unless it's a cruise ship. If you have a cruise ship, I will go as long as you want. But I'm just not normally a boat person. And the reason for that is I'm not, I'm not necessarily afraid, but I think about the idea of like needing to get somewhere. And if you think about it, if you decided you were going to sail, I don't know, from California to Hawaii, that's a pretty small target, right? If I know I'm going to drive somewhere, I'm like, okay, I make a wrong turn, I can back up, I can go. If you're not paying attention and you're trying to sail somewhere and you have a pretty small target you're trying to hit, if you get off by just a tiny little bit and you don't correct it, you're going to end up way off course. That's kind of the idea of sin that we're talking about here. See, if we don't mourn the separation that sin brings from us and God, if we don't decide that we're going to correct the course or remove the sin from our lives, we're not going to hit the target that we're aiming for. And sometimes it's tempting to just kind of go, well, it's just a little bit of sin, or it's not that bad of a sin, or if I let this in, I can take it away later. It's not going to be that big a deal. But that's kind of like if we were sailing somewhere and we had to hit a pretty small target and we just kind of went, ah, I'll worry about it a few days from now. We would end up way off from where we needed to be. And that same idea is true of sin. And, and what Jesus is saying is we have to mourn the idea that we would be separated from God. Now, what we're not saying is when we sin, we get, quote unquote, separated from God and we lose our salvation if we're already followers of him. That's not the case. But the case would be we, we are trying to reflect Jesus. We're trying to look like him. And the more we allow sin to get into our lives, the less we look like him because he was perfect. And so again, we take ourselves out of the equation. We want to look more like him than we look like ourselves. And we mourn the fact or we correct the fact that we might sin and move ourselves away from looking like him in the way that we're supposed to. One of the questions that you might think about in understanding this topic is, do you see your sin like a kitten or a lion? So if we were at the zoo and the cage to the lions opens up, right? Some of us would run. Some of us might be a little curious. And if maybe all you see is this little kitten sitting on the other side, this lion kitten, you may not run as fast until you see mom or dad then you might run a little faster. You might trip the person next to you so that you can get a little further than they can, right? There's a response when we understand exactly what's going on. I think too many times we, say, we see sin like the kitten and not the lion. And again, we think, it's just small. How much could it hurt? Not a big deal. And Jesus uses this word of, of mourning, of being saddened, of being changed by the fact that this would enter our lives. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they will be comforted. Why? Because Jesus has come to erase sin from our lives. And the good thing is, 
if we mourn sin and we recognize the fact that it has separated us from God, we decide to follow Jesus, it goes away. We will be comforted. Our own sin does not ultimately separate us from God anymore if we're a follower of Jesus. But that doesn't mean we allow it in. It doesn't mean we rest in it. It means we still address it the way that we need to. Verse 5, last verse for today, says this, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. This one's a little bit more upfront. Humility. It's a difficult thing, I think. And so he just says, if you are humble, you will inherit the whole earth. And I think that this is intentionally the opposite of what culture teaches. What culture would teach us probably, or what maybe the business world would teach us, or whatever area you're in, is if you, you need to capitalize on the ways that you can. You need to make sure that you are not being taken advantage of. You need to make sure that you are not allowing someone else to get ahead of you. You need to make sure that you put others beside so that you can take care of you and you get yours. And Jesus kind of says, nope, opposite. If you're humble, you will inherit the earth. He's not saying if you get walked all over. He's not saying if you just are a pushover. That's not the point. But the point is, if you honor others more than yourselves, then you will inherit the earth. If other people feel honored because you're around, you will get further than if you make them feel worse for being there. And this idea of humility is an ultimate trust in Christ and not ourselves. Being ultimate, Ultimately, our trust is in him and not us. Pride, humble, humility comes in the, is the opposite of pride, right? Pride comes from the space of, I can do it, it's me, I'm good, I'm going to make it happen. That's pride. Humility is the opposite, and it's that ultimate trust in him. And I think what we need to understand, and what's so difficult and brings us back to this question of does Jesus know better than us, is that Jesus is calling us to live intentionally. The problem is that it's intentionally impossible. He's calling us to live intentionally, but he knows that he is intentionally calling us to something that we cannot do. Think about what he just called his followers to in this message, right? He calls them to be humble, he calls them to be poor in spirit, and he calls them to mourn. And so if you engage, if we engage with this conversation, this topic, this passage, and we go, yes, I can do that. I'm going to do it. It's done. I'm all about it. I can do it myself. We just did the very opposite of what he said. He's saying you have to think about, you have to live intentionally through it, and we have to remove our ability and lean into his instead of finding ourselves at the center of of who we understand. And the great thing is this, it's not transactional, it's relational. So the easy thing for us and me to understand would be if I do X, Y, and Z, I have earned Jesus' favor and I can be a part of what he's saying. But his point is that it's not about just fulfilling X, Y, and Z. Notice he didn't give us an exact formula. He just says, be humble, be poor in spirit, mourn problems that you have or the sin issues in your life. And so it's not something where we can just get a checklist, which can be frustrating to us as well. It'd be much easier if we just had a checklist. But he says, instead, live intentionally each day to be these things because this is what I have done for you. There are three things that I want to 
kind of wrap up our conversation with and, and say, how do we take this and apply it, right? Let's, let's understand. This is a conversation that happened 2,000 years ago. The way that the disciples would apply this passage and where we're going to go over the next couple of weeks, a little bit different than us. So we have to, again, have the conversation kind of with ourselves and say, how do I take this and what does this look like in my context? And the first thing I want us to do is have the ruthless elimination of self. I know it's easy for me to be selfish. I was uh, listening to a sermon the other day, and um, I haven't done this yet, so this is just full disclosure, but I'm thinking about how this would work, and maybe you might like it too. He was talking about selfishness, and he said one of the things that he's begun to do in his house and his family has begun to do is when they're having an interaction with someone and they know they're being selfish, they just simply go, you know what? I'm being selfish. And they just say it. And I think we are really good at sometimes saying that, but not really saying it. <laughs> like, yeah, but I need this, or I want this, or I just have to do this right now, right? But in reality, he's like, sometimes I'm just being selfish. And he said, sometimes my wife looks at me, and she goes, you know what? You, it's okay. You can be selfish right now. He says, other times, she says, suck it up and stop being selfish. But there's that honest conversation that happens there where we're recognizing I'm I'm focusing on me. And this is the opposite of what Jesus is calling us to. And, it, and it, you know what? It doesn't mean that we can't say, I work hard for my money and I want to spend it sometimes the way I want to spend it. It doesn't mean I, I work hard at my job and now this vacation, I have this vacation and I want it to go the way that I want it to go. It's not, it's not saying that we're not taking care of ourselves. It's saying... Don't make it all about you. And I think the difference is when we take care of ourselves, others benefit from that. When I take care of myself, I'm a better husband and a better dad and a better pastor and all of those things. I think the same is true for you guys in your context. It's not talking about taking care of ourselves. It's talking about just simply choosing what we want and making our world about us. Because that's the very opposite of what Jesus has taught us in this passage. You know, he says this later. He says the two most important commandments, right? Love God and love others as what? Yourself. Doesn't have to teach us to love ourselves, does he? We do that automatically. And so this is an intentional decision we have to make. But it's intentionally difficult. And it's something we have to continue to come back to. Number two is this. Eliminate sin simply because it separates. We talked about this a second ago and I explained it. That but we eliminate it because it separates. So that means when we see sin, we recognize sin. Somebody who loves us recognizes sin. We have to be willing to eliminate it. We have to get rid of it. We have to make a plan and say, I'm not going to go to this place anymore. I'm not going to make this decision anymore. I'm not going to open this app anymore. I'm not going to X, Y, Z and put real roadblocks and ideas to this place where we're going to be able to say, this is going to help me not get to the place where I've gotten to before. And sometimes that's a conversation with somebody else. And sometimes that looks like, hey, I'm selfish in this area. Will you help me not be that? And that's hard to do. Why? Because it, it does exactly what this passage says. It takes us and we have to be able to say, I'm not good enough to do this on my own. I need help. I need you to check in with me. I need you to move me in the right direction. I need you to hold me accountable. And when that's the case, we have a better way of eliminating sin. 
But what I know is that if you're silent about it, it's probably not going to happen. If you're silent about your battle with sin or about the sin you're trying to get rid of, it's probably not going to get eliminated because no one else knows about it. But when we recognize and we look at this idea of, of mourning, like Jesus says, and we're willing to then remove that, that's the correct response that we are to have to sin. One of the ways I think about this is um, the idea of thy kingdom come or my kingdom come. You know, we're going to get to a part in this passage where we do get to the Lord's Prayer. And one of the prayers is, or part of the prayers is that thy kingdom come. It's about your kingdom. It's not about me. But a lot of times we get stuck in a place of, it is about me. And as Jesus begins this conversation with us, one of the things he wants us to understand is, it's not about you anymore. It's not about you being the center of attention. It's about Christ being the center of our attention. And we should live our lives in a way that says, thy kingdom come instead of my kingdom come. Um, the way that I think we put this all together is we say everyday choices need to become eternally focused decisions. Have you ever noticed that um, decisions and choices are very different? A choice is something I do when I get to the ice cream parlor and I have to decide between vanilla and chocolate. By the way, the right choice is always chocolate. But that's a choice, right? There is no real problem with me choosing either. And there's no real big deal about how the world is going to change if I choose either one, right? It's just a choice. It's something very simple. Decisions are much different. But here's what I think is true. If we go through our day or our life or our week, whatever that means, and we just see everything as a choice, we will always choose what we want. So when I get to the ice cream parlor and I choose chocolate, why? I want chocolate. I'm not choosing it because Becca wants chocolate. I choose it because I want chocolate. And if every decision is that way, I'm going to choose what I want every single time. But a decision is different. A decision is made with an understanding of what it's going to look like tomorrow, what it's going to look like next year, what it's going to look like for my family, what it's going to look like for my career. And it's done with an intention of understanding that this decision has a bigger impact than just today. And so when we look at these words and we decide that we're going to make those everyday choices become eternally focused decisions, we make those decisions and we decide to look like Christ because of the impact it's going to make later, not just of what it means for right now. And when we decide to make those decisions, it's done with a framework every day of understanding that those decisions are not just in a vacuum. They don't end today. They continue on for tomorrow. And when we make those decisions to look more like Jesus, we say his kingdom come instead of just ours. If you were paying attention, I went through two points already, and I didn't get to my third. So here's my last one, and this will be the last illustration we, we end with today. Airplanes are much safer than cars. Now, what does that mean? Okay. You know, there's studies out there that say if you are on an airplane you're much statistically less likely to be in an accident than if you drive a car. And yet, when you get on an airplane, when I get on an airplane, I see a lot of people who are nervous, right? Maybe you're one of those people, right? Legs shaking, like biting the nails, like trying to not, they've already got the headphones on and zoned into whatever they're watching so they don't have to think about what's going to happen in the next 20 minutes or however long till you take off. 
One of the things I like to do, it's probably a little bit mean. When I meet somebody who's going to get on a plane for the first time and they've never been on, I just look at them and go, this is going to freak you out. And I don't like tell them it's going to scare them, but I'm just like, this is, it's going to mess with you. Like there's something about being up in the air in a tin can that just is unsettling. And then it hits that first like dip of turbulence and you're like, it makes me nervous. I'm, I'll be honest. Like I've probably only flown on like 20 airplanes, but, and I know I'm fine. It's still a little nerve wracking because it just doesn't feel the same as having four wheels on the ground, right? It's just different. But here's what I know is true. If I'm in a car with you and you're driving and I'm either in the back seat or the passenger seat and you're driving in a way that's making me nervous, I might say something to you because I know how to drive a car. But if I'm on an airplane and we hit turbulence, I'm not going to get up and go knock on the captain's door and say, can I fly the plane? Because I don't know how to fly the plane. But here's what we have to understand. A lot of times, we think we know better than we do. We think we can look at a situation or look at scripture or look at what God's doing and we say, I could do that better. I could figure that out. I could drive better than he can. The problem is we're on an airplane and not driving a car. And we should allow the person who knows how to fly, who knows how to be in control of life, who knows how to teach us what it means to look like him, we should lean into what he has to say and not so much on what we have to say. And it's a difficult place to get to. And it means looking at passages like this and saying, I've got to put me aside. And getting to places in Scripture where we say, I don't like what Scripture's teaching me, or I don't like what this means for my life, and how I'm going to have to change, and what I'm going to have to do with it. And just saying, you know what? I think Jesus knows better than I do. And allowing that to be the end decision. And saying, I need to be less important in this equation, and I need Jesus to be more important. And again, it's, it's a constant, eternally focused decisions. Not just simple choices that we make to appease what we want, but we focus on what God has called us to be. So what does that mean? That means, at home, to be a little less selfish. We have to be a little more humble. We have to approach conversations and things where we might have issues with one another or we might have an, an ability to kind of take over at certain times and just say, I'm going to be humble instead. It means recognizing the thing that we're supposed to mourn, the sin that's been kind of existing in our lives or the attitude that we've had or the thing that we've done and, and saying we're going to treat that as what it's supposed to be and get it out of our lives. It means being poor in spirit and saying, you know what? I can't do it all by myself. And having a daily dependence on Christ so that we look more like him. And it means as we read scripture and as we see areas where we go, I, I just don't know about that. We don't find a way around it. We don't find a neat way to kind of tidy it up and move it into a space where it's easier for us. But that we do the hard things. And we say we're going to allow scripture and Jesus' words to mold us rather than what we want and what we think is true. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we are thankful that we 
that we can see your words, that we get, continue to learn from them thousands of years later. And we ask that you would give us the strength to follow them. We ask that even in times when it seems like it's something so difficult or it's something that's counterintuitive or it's counter to what the culture is teaching us, that we would do the hard work of following you and attempting to look more like you in the way that you've taught us to be. We ask that we would spend our days making eternally focused decisions instead of just making choices and that we would make those decisions in a way that causes others to see you and us, that causes us to look more like you. And we thank you for the gift of your son and the fact that we can see what that looked like in his life all these years ago. We pray for our time as we study through this passage of scripture this year, and we kind of dig into these few chapters a little bit more um, over the course of the weeks, and we ask that we would allow it to shape and mold our lives the way that you would want it to. In Jesus' name, amen.